Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. And I've entitled our message, The Handwriting on the Wall, which is interesting because it's a phrase that we use that actually comes from the Bible and actually comes from Daniel chapter 5. When Tim Keller moved his family to start Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he asked his wife Kathy to grant him three years of long hours, and after that he promised that things would change. Kathy agreed to Tim's request, but when the three-year mark came and went, Tim said, just a couple more months. Still, the months flew by with no change. Although Kathy was incredibly patient and restrained, she did have to get Tim's attention, and he writes about what happened next. He said, one day I came home from work. It was a nice day outside, and I noticed that the door to our apartment's balcony was open. And just as I was taking off my jacket, I heard a smashing noise coming from the balcony. In another couple of seconds, I heard another one. I walked out on the balcony, and to my surprise, saw Kathy sitting on the floor. She had a hammer, and next to her was a stack of our wedding china. And on the ground were the shards of two smashed pieces of that china. What are you doing, I asked. She looked up and she said, you're not listening to me. You don't realize that if you keep working these hours, you're going to destroy this family. And I don't know how to get through to you. You aren't seeing how serious this is. This is what you're doing. And she brought the hammer down on a third saucer. I sat down trembling. I thought my wife had snapped. I'm listening, I'm listening, I said. And as we talked, it became clear that she was intense and laser-focused, but she was not in a rage or out of control emotionally. She spoke calmly, but forcefully. Her arguments were the same as they'd been for months, but I realized how deluded I had been. There would never be a convenient time to cut back. I was addicted to the level of productivity I had achieved, and she saw me listening for the first time, and we hugged. Finally, I had to ask. He said, when I first came out here, I thought you were having an emotional meltdown. How did you get control of yourself so fast? With a grin, she said, it was no meltdown. Do you see these three saucers I smashed? I nodded. I have no cups for them. (laughs) The cups have been broken for years. I had three saucers to smash. I'm glad you sat down before I had to break anything else. One thing the story illustrates for us is what righteous jealousy looks like. There are harmful forms of jealousy, but the jealousy that Kathy Keller had for her marriage and family was a righteous jealousy, a zealous concern to protect a relationship. God has that same trait in his nature. In fact, it's mentioned quite a few times in the Old Testament. There are certain things that God is not interested in sharing. He won't let stand other things. This trait is mentioned often in the context where you see a command to worship God, worship the true God, and God alone. So where there's the alternative is worshiping idols or worshiping false gods or false religions, that's where this shows up. It's in that kind of context many times in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, where there's to be no idols, no graven images, no other gods, etc. It'll say, because your God is a jealous God. God's jealousy is his zeal to protect and defend something that has incredible value. His name, his character, 
his honor, his relationship with his people, his ability to have a relationship with humanity, and the intensity of his jealousy, or as jealousy might be a part of God's anger, the intensity of his jealousy is directly proportionate to the depth of his love. When great things are at risk, that's when you see this sort of show up in God's nature. God is protective. He's jealous over whatever allows him to have a relationship with humanity. False gods, false religions threaten that. A misrepresentation of God's word, a rewriting of God's word into something that we can handle but no longer God's word threatens that. In the 6th century BC, a Babylonian king got a lesson in the theology of God's jealousy. I want to talk about that this morning. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you in the pew. Grab it, and Daniel chapter 5 is on page 632. Page 632. It's a fascinating story. Daniel chapter 5, page 632. We're going to begin reading the first part of this story. Belshazzar, so this is a new Babylonian king. Up until now, we've been talking about Nebuchadnezzar. This is Belshazzar, new king. Belshazzar, the king, probably the grandson through the uh, uh, marriages of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of this thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, now he's called a father, terms for relatives in the Bible are often very elastic, so we believe it's actually his grandfather. Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they're taking temple artifacts that were taken over maybe you know, 50 or 60 years before out of Jerusalem's temple. They're taking those artifacts and now they're gonna use them in a pagan feast. And then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Now, what's interesting, you don't usually see that phrase, third ruler in the kingdom. That's because he was a vice regent with his father, Nabonidus. So they ruled together. So he's saying, Nabonidus and I are the, are the kings. You'd be number three. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Just a couple of points as we walk through this story, and then really one key application. First, the setting, Belshazzar uses God's china at a pagan banquet. So thus far in the book of Daniel, and this happened before the book of Daniel, Israel has been defeated, first by the Assyrians in about 722, the northern ten tribes were defeated, captured, and then around 600 BC, maybe 605 all the way to 586, there were multiple incursions by the Babylonians into the southern two tribes. So these southern two tribes are now taken over, and then Daniel and his friends are deported. About 10,000 young people from Israel were deported into Babylon. The idea was that they would sort of train these young people and get them in sort of the Babylonian system, and then therefore Israel would never revolt against Babylon in the future. So Israel's been defeated and deported. Naturally, major questions exist regarding their God. Is God the same? You know, the God who helped us come out of Egypt hundreds of years before, the God who was with Moses when he parted the Red Sea, the God who was with Joshua when we went into the Promised Land, the God who was with David in the Valley of Elah against Goliath, who saw all those miracles take place throughout all of those generations, is that God the same, or has God been defeated? Because now we can't even occupy our land that God promised us. So has God been defeated? Is it time to just fit in? You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Is it time to shop for a new God because God doesn't seem to be showing up? That would have been the question in the mind of all the Jews who were deported. And yet God, so far in the book, continues to make himself known even in Babylon. God goes on the road. God takes road trips. Miracles accompanied his people. Prophecies about future kingdoms of the earth were given to foreign kings in the book of Daniel. And and you remember earlier, one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams where where he was given this vision of four kingdoms, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, and then Jesus would come from that. That took place in the 6th century B.C., a prediction of the next 600 years of world history. God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar until he acknowledged Israel's God. This took place on foreign soil where God worked with that former king and humbled him to the point that he legally protected Israel's religion. And he wrote about Israel's God in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, to all the known world to acknowledge and know the true God. All right, that was grandpa's kingdom. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Now a new king emerges. There are a couple of kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar that aren't mentioned in Scripture. It's not the goal of Daniel to give you a full history. He's giving you accurate history, but not a full history. So a couple of kings had very short reigns. Then Nabonidus is the next king with a long reign, from about 556 to 539, and his son Belshazzar, likely a co-regent with Nabonidus, is ruling in Babylon. Belshazzar knew about grandpa's respect for Israel's God, but he didn't share it. He believed in Babylon's gods. His father, Nabonidus, had built this great temple to a god named Sin, who was the moon god. 
Now, at this point, the Persians are actually outside the gates. They're laying siege to this capital city. And in the middle of that, because Babylon was a fortress, you could never take it by the walls. I was just watching the movie uh, Troy yesterday. Remember with the Achilles? All right, how many have seen that movie? Hey, a little better than last week with Enemy at the Gates. I'm proud of you. You've been going to movies this week. All right. I was watching the movie Troy. And remember those impenetrable walls? Babylon was like that. Thick, high walls and well-fortified gates. You could never take the city of Babylon in normal warfare. It was incredibly well-fortified. So during this banquet that Belshazzar hosts, there's an army outside trying to lay siege to the city, but they're not really concerned. And so he's got this big banquet with a thousand nobles, and it's sort of a pep rally. He's taking a drink of wine, and he decides to make a theological point. And so he calls for the vessels that Grandpa had sacked from Israel's temple. And this is not common tableware. This is, these were artifacts, holy worship artifacts. And Belshazzar is trying to embarrass Israel's God. And by the way, and this isn't in the text, but scholars absolutely believe this based on Babylonian culture, this was a full-on sexual orgy in the palace. And they're at the meal. And God's china is being used to serve drinks. So they drank from God's china, naked in a foreign palace, praising false gods, having sex in public. And God had seen enough. So a bodiless hand, just a hand, no arm, just a hand, the handwriting on the wall, bodiless hand wrote on the wall in full view of all of these partiers, a few words. A jealous God decided to defend his honor on foreign soil. He made a statement. Unfortunately for them, nobody knew what the statement actually meant. Nobody understood it. We'll talk about why that was perhaps in a few moments. Second point, the interpreter's solution, since nobody could read it, was Daniel. God has a sense of humor. Only Daniel, a servant of the mocked God, the God who's being mocked here, could read this handwriting on the wall. Now, for some reason, the message was not easily readable, and there's some speculation about why that is, but the story is fascinating. The king is there. There's this massive party going on. The king is visibly shaken. The servers stop serving. The naked dancers stop. The room is silent. And Nebuchadnezzar calls for the palace wise men, a group of people that probably studied the stars in a good way and probably that were a little bit more on the, uh, you know, the cultic side of things, the dark magic arts, whatever. Daniel used to be a part of that, sort of the good wise men. And they call them together. They have no idea what is written there. And it's possible that these are simple Aramaic words, which was the language of the kingdom. We don't know. Nobody knows. But it's possible that they're Aramaic words, but they're just like words with no context, words with no sentences. So there's not really a message. There's just three words. And maybe these wise men saw the words but didn't understand the meaning behind it. It might have been a different language. We're not sure. The words are given to us, I believe, in Aramaic. But there was no solution to their interpretation. Finally, the queen mother arrives, and she knew about Daniel, the Jew. The Jew whose God is being mocked at this banquet, this orgy. 
And she told Belshazzar of his exploits with dreams and visions. And so based on, now this is kind of interesting because you still imagine Daniel's a young man just because we don't have all the history of his life. They estimate at this point in history, Daniel's 81. So Daniel, an 81-year-old, probably retired Daniel, is summoned to this pagan mocking of Israel's God. And he's welcomed by the king. And then we have the message from God. The message was, the sovereign God you mock is ready for a change of world domination. Now this is a fascinating story. I'm going to read it for you, beginning in verse 17. Then we'll talk about it. Daniel answered and said before the king. Now the king has promised him all sorts of things. You know, he's going to be third in line and he's going to get you know, special clothes and some really great jewelry. And if you don't like it, your wife will like it, that sort of thing. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to somebody else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, actually your grandfather. Again, these words for relatives are pretty elastic. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beasts. We talked about this a week or so ago. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. In other words, God puts kings in place. You're always under God's authority. You're never without accountability. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hands are, are your life, breath, and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, farsen. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means the idea of numbering. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have weighed on the scales and been found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued the proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was slain. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So Daniel gives Belshazzar a history lesson. He speaks of a God who is sovereign over earthly kingdoms. He talks about Grandpa Nebuchadnezzar and his relationship with the true God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar never became a true believer, but he acknowledged Israel's God. He spoke about Belshazzar's pride and how God had, had brought him low and, and he had gone through this period of what's actually known as boanthropy, where you actually think you're a cow, and he went through that. He speaks of the insult to God 
that this younger king has, has been a part of, and he delivers the sentence. Verse 25 to 28, we just read it. This was the sentence. Your days are numbered. God thinks you're a lightweight, my words. That group outside, they're next, you arrogant little punk. That's in the Aramaic. All right. God had a message for this king. Now this happened next, according to secular sources. Okay, we're going to go outside of the Bible. You can find these stories in the works of Herodotus, the great historian from the past, and in the Nabonidus Chronicle. In other words, it's not just the Bible that talks about these aren't myths and fables. There's good history in Daniel, and it's supported by Herodotus and Nabonidus in their own writings. That night, the Medes, the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, they had been working for some time, sort of a civil engineering project. This is just fascinating because you could not take down the city of Babylon. I mean, this, this young king had a reason to be arrogant. This was the world power in that part of the world. And, and the capital city was incredibly well fortified. It was like Troy in the movie Troy. The Medes and the Persians had been working probably day and night during that summer to divert the Euphrates River away from the capital city. So what they did was the Euphrates River, like a lot of rivers, had an old pathway and a new pathway. And so they went through a major civil engineering project and they re-diverted the river and finally that night they opened the waters to go in the other direction, diverting them so that the river that flowed into Babylon no longer was deep and no longer went up to the walls. It was low so a man could walk in at thigh level. And the army of the Medes and the Persians went into Babylon that night, not based on the Bible, based on other historians, went into the city of Babylon that night and there was virtually no battle. Oh, they probably had to kill a few people and the king was slain, but historians say there was virtually no battle. They walked in on the river. There were pretty much no defenses there because everyone's at the, the gates and other places, and people didn't even know what had happened until the city was pretty much taken over. And interestingly, if you go back to Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the four kingdoms, this is the second kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar's dream that's now ruling. First Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome before Jesus. All these words were written in Aramaic. The language of the kingdoms of the world at that time. All of these words are written in Aramaic so that this prophecy of Daniel could go to the known world so that Israel's God would be known to be alive and sovereign. It's fascinating. Really only one app I want to talk about, the handwriting on the wall apps. God will not share his place in this world with any other gods or religions. The trends away from a belief in absolute truth do not have a friend in the God of the Bible. And we live in a world that has been so deeply affected by pluralism 
the belief basically that you, know, you have all these different religions and even though they disagree with each other, since we really can't prove anything is true, they're all true. And so you actually hear this term, which just makes me want to put my head through a wall. What's true for you? Your truth versus my truth. How about the truth? Something must be real. Something must be true. You can't have four or five major religions that all disagree with each other on every major theological point and say they're all true. No, either one of them is true or none of them is true and we should be agnostics and we just haven't figured out what the truth is or the atheists are right and there is no God, but one of those things is true. One of the four world religions, another religion we don't know about because God never revealed himself or the atheists are right, but something must be true. And today the gospel is being reinterpreted and, and twisted as well, which is another form of falsehood. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then scriptures just a few pages over are used to say, well, everyone's coming to the Father. God's just going to sort of use Jesus as a way for all other world religions to sort of make it into heaven. It's, everyone's going to be happy in the end. And I so wish that was true. These kinds of trends are recent to us but they're not new. Old Testament prophets lived in a world of polytheism, belief in many gods. And they would sort of syncretize them together. And the Israelites did that in the Old Testament. They did it against God's wishes. They would worship Baal and they would worship their God. They thought Baal's the God who's gonna grow our crops and the God of heaven's the one who's gonna win our wars. And they would sort of take different pieces from both of these religions. And that's why God said, you can't do that. I'm a jealous God, I don't share who I am. New Testament apostles faced a similar challenge. Rome was full of gods. Greece had been full of gods. Rome adopted that. And when Rome would conquer new territory, they would, didn't wipe out religions, they just assimilated them to the point where there were all kinds of gods and mythological figures. The problem is, Christians are starting to believe this is okay. Buried within Pew Research's study on the religious landscape was a startling find. Adults who identified with a specific religion were asked whether they see their religion as the one true faith leading to eternal life, or if in their view, many religions can lead to eternal life. And how you answer such a question will determine whether trying to reach people with the gospel is even important, whether it's a matter of urgency or complacency. I mean, if, if all religions lead to the same place, it really doesn't matter if we try to reach people with the gospel. Listen to this. This is Pew Research. In a stunning revelation, two-thirds of Christians believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. All right, so that's two-thirds of people like us are saying, oh yeah, I mean, you know, all these different roads lead to the same destination. 50% of all Christians believe some non-Christian religions can lead to life everlasting. That kind of universalism is making a comeback. You know, it might be Jesus' cross that gets everyone in, but they can get in through all these various paths. That is not the clear teaching of the New Testament. In his recent book, author Mark Clark wrote, if you want to understand the dogma of religious pluralism, consider a scene from the comedy movie Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. I would not recommend that movie, by the way. Can't give that the four-star pastoral approval. So if you watch it, somebody remind the other person, he actually warned you about that one. 
If you haven't seen it, Ricky's a professional race car driver whose whose car crashes during a race. And thinking he's on fire as he runs out of his car, he runs around the tap crying out, help me Jesus, help me Jewish God, help me Allah, help me Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off of me, help me Oprah Winfrey. In other words, when it comes to God, you're best to hedge your bets. One God doesn't necessarily exclude the others, so don't limit yourself to just one when you can believe in all of them at once. This concept actually has its roots in Hinduism and Eastern philosophy, and it's actually largely been adopted in the Western culture. None of the people who believe this think they're Hindu, but they basically are. It can be found in several popular versions. Rabbi Shmuley Botip, I'm absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. All right, that's a rabbi, a liberal rabbi. I'm absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. Think about the implications of that statement. Mahatma Gandhi Great man. My position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Oprah Winfrey, not a religious leader, but she seems to kind of be one. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. Oprah Winfrey. Pluralism's basic premise is that all religions are true, or at least partially true, and have value. And in our culture, it is considered narrow-minded and judgmental to believe anything else. So how do we respond to the theology of Ricky Bobby? That movie's basically a comedy, but this concept isn't. We're in trouble. The world is in trouble. And when Jesus was sort of looking for a word to define it, I I love the word he used because Jesus doesn't necessarily just throw the word evil at people who don't follow and things like that, you know. And and actually, when Jesus talked about hell, he was usually (laughs) pointing at the Pharisees, not a person who really had an open heart. The word Jesus would use is lost. The way we think is a reflection of how lost this world really is is. God doesn't share the process of rescuing humanity with other world religions. How could he who claims to be the way, the truth, the life, ignore his own claims? He doesn't want to be combined with other gods, included in other religions. He doesn't want to be one of many ways He doesn't want to be watered down by modern theologians, and he really doesn't want to be reinterpreted by modern deconstructionism. He has spoken. Either this is true or it is not true. But we don't get to just reinterpret it to sort of figure out and sift it down until we get the God we really like. He and his words stand as written, unapologetically stating that God created our world. He is sovereign. He owns it. He is the only true God. We broke it. 
Because we broke it, we are separated from God in many ways. We cannot fix what we broke. We need to be rescued. We needed a Savior. The God who created this world never lost his love for his creation. He loves this broken world. He loved this broken world, so there was a point in history which was prophesied from the third page of the Bible. He loved it enough that he came into it as Jesus, God's son. His life, even his birth, was authenticated over and over and over and over by the miraculous. He did whatever he wanted to in order to prove that he was God. The forces of nature bowed to him. The forces of sickness, the forces of death, the forces of demons. We see it in his miracles over and over and over. And that authenticated Jesus as the Son of God. His real purpose was to die on a cross because we needed a Savior, so he came to die, and he died on a cross to pay the penalty for sin. And when he died on that cross, every wrong choice, every wrong moral choice that you and I have ever made was paid for in Jesus' death on the cross if we believe and follow him. He rose again signifying his victory over Satan, sin, and death. He is the only true God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, follow him alone. Worship him alone. Obey him alone. He will not share that with any other God or religion. If you're really a Christian in the biblical sense, we become those narrow-minded people, according to that rabbi I quoted earlier, because you have to make a choice about whether this is true. And whether we believe it's true or not doesn't affect whether it's true. It just affects whether we will follow him. Have you given your life to the only true God? He is jealous for a relationship with you. You know, if you're here and you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, what it looks like is simply belief, but belief has many facets. We're to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's sort of the accepting of a historic fact, a reality that Jesus is the Son of God. That's belief. That's faith. We're also to trust in what Jesus did on the cross. That's more of a a, a dependence element. We're trusting that what Jesus did on the cross satisfied the Father's anger for sin. And so we place faith in that. We trust in that. And another side of faith that Jesus talks about is commitment. We're to make him the Lord of our lives. So to be a Christian means we believe that Jesus is Son of God, our Savior, and our Lord. If you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus, I want to put a simple prayer of faith on the screen for you, and I'm going to read through it. And I would encourage you today to make that step to follow the true God. I just encourage you in your heart of hearts to pray this as I pray it out loud. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. And I believe you died on the cross to rescue me from my sins. I believe you are the only way to peace with the Father. I want to follow you. 
I commit my life to you as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the Bible says when we make that faith step, it's the point at which we begin a new journey with Jesus. We become a part of his family. Nothing magical happens, but we now have crossed into God's family. The Holy Spirit joins us in our life as a part of that relationship with God. God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you have given us evidence that your word can be trusted. That uh, I think of the New Testament and the thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts of New Testament books that we have. And some of them that go back to the very first century when they're dated by archaeologists and they're all over the libraries of the world. And, and we know that your word has been preserved almost perfectly, almost no distortion. And so we know we have the stories that these people were a part of, that they saw with their own eyes. We just have to decide whether we believe it's true. Help us to believe. Help us to understand the faith that we live is never going to be popular in our world. But we live it because we believe that there's one God and Jesus is his son and he came to rescue us. Help us to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.